I just had a look down at my feet here before I started, and I'm glad I did, because I, I think I could avoid a serious accident later in the service. The little footstool that I normally have below me here has been broken, and I quite often jump on it while I'm preaching. So I'll, I'll put that aside and avoid any twisted ankles or anything uh, that, that might interrupt us as we go here this evening. Thank you to Fiona for leading and the, the guys playing and helping us to, to worship God this evening. We're going to come to Kings in a moment, but I thought I'd uh, share with you a verse that I shared with the guys at our staff meeting this week. Um, I don't know how much of Zephaniah's short prophecy you're uh, familiar with. I am familiar with none of it um, until I read it. So, But when I did read it this past week, I, I saw a verse there that I, I, I do remember and was familiar with. It's, it's widely quoted and well known. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the Lord is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love, and he'll rejoice over you with singing. I was very struck by Fiona's uh, comment that it's easy to come to church and feel bad about ourselves, and I think that's true. I think, I think that often is, is what ends up happening. Um, when I read this, it talks here about God who's going to delight over us with singing. I don't know about you, but I only sing when I'm in the best mood possible. I used to sing in work when it was the last day of work for me, um, and I knew all my colleagues weren't getting out uh, the, the next week. If I was going on holiday, I used to sing Madonna Holiday across the floor in the middle of the office, more for my, my amusement and but it was because I was in a good mood. It's because I was rejoicing. And here we're told that that, that that spontaneity of joy that makes a person sing is what God feels over us. As I read that this week, it struck me that I don't always think of it that way. He'll take great delight in you He'll quiet you with his love. He, the living God, will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for for this little reminder in your word that you you do love us with a a passion, with a heart that, that bursts within you. Lord, we know that we're sinful. We know our our brokenness and and our flaws. But you love us. You tell us that. Tonight, as we gather here, we want to know the smile of your love. And Lord, if if we need to learn a a new thing or two about ourselves, and if we need a a challenge or a warning, then let us hear it. But let us leave here uh, ready to know your smile over us. That's what we want. Lord, be with us now as we spend a few minutes thinking about your word together. Amen. I did a wee bit of research this week on my heart age. Anybody know their heart age? Not a single soul. Does anybody eat flora, margarine? 
Anybody? Yeah, a few people. On the side of the Flora Carton this week, I noticed uh, a website that they were pointing you to where you could calculate your heart age. I don't know what it says about the kind of week that I've had, but I, I thought I'd try this out. Well, you'll see it, it ties in. I, I went on and answered a few questions about my sort of height, uh, my waist, uh, my blood pressure, my cholesterol. I typed in all this stuff, and in the end, it guides you through this series of steps, and in the end, I was told that my heart age was 38. Now, I'm 37 years old, and I'm guessing, I must try this, I must go back and to give totally different answers to the questions, I'm guessing that they simply add about a year or two to your actual age to get you a wee bit nervous, but not so nervous that you give up on the whole thing. Just enough to get you interested in buying a few Flora products to get your heart that little bit healthier and get you back on the right track. So what's your heart age? What shapes your heart in? Flora aren't the first people who've asked us to look after our hearts. In Proverbs 4.23 we read, Above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. So they're not talking there, the, the, the writer of Proverbs isn't talking there about the, the pump that pumps the blood around our bodies. He's talking about our hearts in, in a different way. It's that emotional center, that seat of our deepest longings and our desires. He says, guard it because it's the wellspring of your life. As we think more, a little more this evening about the life of Solomon, we're going to think about the importance of heart keeping, of keeping our hearts. What sort of shape is Solomon's heart in uh, by the time we get to this point in the narrative? Well, we've seen over the last few weeks that there's good in Solomon's heart. He's probably, if you just took it at face value, if you asked a few kids in Sunday school or adults in the average church, what kind of a guy is Solomon? I think they'd say he's a good guy. And they tell you the story of Solomon and his wisdom. God appears to him in chapter 3. He says, Solomon, you can have whatever you like. And Solomon says, Lord, I, I need wisdom to, get, to, to lead these people of yours. I can't do this. I'm like a little child. I need your help. And it's a wonderful, affirming moment for Solomon. There's a, a second moment of, of wonderful goodness that I can see in Solomon. It's when he builds the temple of the Lord. Uh, for years, God's people have had either a, a mobile temple, the, the tabernacle, or, or no tabernacle at all. And it's a, a crowning moment in the history of God's people when Solomon's able to build a, a beautiful golden temple. And in chapter 8, we're told of this wonderful moment where God visibly comes and makes himself present there. Solomon prays a wonderful prayer uh, of, of dedication for the temple. So there's lots of good in Solomon's life, and we've seen that in the first 10 chapters of 1 of Kings. We've seen some stuff that's not so good, haven't we? It's the stuff that's a little bit less well-known in the biblical narrative. In chapter 2, we saw that he's pretty ruthless. As soon as he comes to the throne, he does what his father David told him to do. He murders three of his political opponents, Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei. 
he, he proves himself well capable of doing some pretty cynical stuff when he feels it needs done. Chapter 3, we're introduced to his problem with women. Chapter 3, verse 1, he marries Pharaoh's daughter. That's something that's explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. Israel are not to intermarry with the, the people of other nations in case they lead them astray into worship of idols. So we've seen that side of Solomon's character. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll have seen in chapter 7 that in the middle of the temple building, uh, the, the author flags up something pretty serious there too. Solomon's building this temple and it all looks pretty wonderful until we notice that he, at the same time he's building a palace for himself four times the size of the temple he's building for God. An indicator of where Solomon's priorities might lie. Those are the things that we have seen so far in the narrative. I thought I'd take a few moments this evening just to fill out some of the stuff that we've missed along the way to build up a picture of what kind of health Solomon's heart is in at this point. Solomon is being drawn into a life of ever-increasing luxury. Solomon always had lots of wealth around him, and the the story tells us that right from the start. I'm going to ask you to flick with me for a moment to see some of the stuff that I'm talking about. Chapter 4, verse 20. Here the narrator is telling us a little bit about the early prosperity in Solomon's kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate they drank, and they were happy. Now, that's a proverbial way the narrator is telling us, this is a good time to be in Israel. There's wealth in the land. The wealth is distributed through the people. Everybody has what they need, and they're happy. As we read on in the account, we read of more and more wealth flowing into Israel. But by the end of chapter 10, the wealth is presented in a totally different way. If you flick to the second half of chapter 10, we'll not read it, but skim it as I pointed out to you. Solomon's prosperity here is described for us in terms not of the, the wealth and, and the standard of living of his people, but only in terms of the gold that he accumulates. Ten times in half a chapter, we're told of Solomon's accumulated gold. So Solomon is moving into a life of greater and greater and greater luxury. And then there's the slave labor that Solomon's employing. Chapter 9, verse 15, look at it with me. An account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, and the walls of Jerusalem. Forced labor. Slaves. Solomon had slaves to build walls, terraces, palaces, and, and yes, the temple of the Lord. So here's this temple 
built to worship the God of the Exodus. We've been learning about that in Sunday mornings. The God who sets his people free from slavery. And how's it built? With slave labor. Solomon is making slaves. And then there are the military bases. In chapter 9, verse 15, we're told of one of the uses that Solomon puts his slave labor to. He builds Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. It's one of those places where the names don't mean much to us until we have a look at what these places actually were. These are military bases. Solomon's using massive resources of his empire to to build up a huge army to support and protect the massive resources of his empire. And then there are the tanks. Chapter 10, verse 26. Let me read it for you, or we'll read it together. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered why he gathered so many horses? It's not because he was an animal kind of guy. Pharaoh's soldiers rode on horses. They used chariots as they chased Israel out of Egypt to recapture them. These are the the tanks and the fighter planes of the era. And Solomon's accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. Jerusalem is becoming the new Egypt, the new oppressive empire. There's a new pharaoh on the throne and his name is Solomon, son of David. And then last of all in this depressing catalog, Solomon's in the arms trade. He not only accumulates these arms, the final verses of chapter 10 tells us that he imports his horses from Egypt, that he exports them to the Hittites and the Arameans. Solomon's worked out that arms are not only good for him, they're, they're a very lucrative business. He's making money from violence. He's discovered that war is profitable. What's the state of Solomon's heart? It's a crucial question. Last week, as David guided us through chapters 9 and 10, he, he showed us a, a passage in chapter 9 where God spoke to Solomon. He reappeared to Solomon and he warned him about the state of his heart. Let me read for you chapter 9, verses 4 to 9. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I'll establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you and your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I'll cut off Israel from the land I've given them and I'll reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. 
Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and will say, why has the Lord done this thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of Egypt. They've embraced other gods and worshipped them. That is why the Lord has brought this disaster on them. God's promised to establish Solomon's throne if he maintains integrity of heart. Keep your heart healthy, Solomon, and you'll keep your throne. That's God's promise. So our question this evening about the state of Solomon's heart becomes a crucial one. The future of the kingdom depends on it. And so far the author hasn't really uh, declared his verdict on all of this. He's told us about some of Solomon's good qualities. He's told us uh, of of these areas where, where Solomon has wandered from God. And everything's a little bit ambiguous until now, until chapter 11. And now in chapter 11, everything that's been ambiguous becomes clear. We're told finally of the true state of Solomon's heart. These few verses, and we'll just skim through them, they read a bit like a court case. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 11, the prosecutor makes his case. He picks up on two issues in particular. He goes back to one of the, the first issues that he has with Solomon. Solomon's foreign wives. It was expressly forbidden in Deuteronomy that Israel would choose wives from among the foreign nations. When you do this, you disobey the express command of God. And, and there's a reason given back in Deuteronomy of why you don't worship, or sorry, marry foreign wives. It's because of their propensity to turn your heart away from God. Now, we knew about Solomon marrying the wife of Pharaoh in Egypt. We learned that in chapter 3. Here we see a a slightly more worrying picture even than that. 700 royal wives, 300 concubines. Now, I can't quite get my head around that. I, I tried to picture what that might look like and my mind was too small to to come to terms with that. No wonder his heart was turned away. Uh, I wondered if his head wasn't turned as well. 700 wives, 300 concubines. The warning of Deuteronomy turns to be true. Do you remember the writer in Deuteronomy warned that the foreign wife will lead you in the end to the foreign god? When I studied this at home, I don't think I heard it quite the way I heard it when Fiona read it. To hear the names of these foreign idol gods and how the king of Israel chases after them. Ashtoreth of the Sidonians, Molech of the Ammonites, Molech and Chemosh of Moab. He builds temples to these gods, high places where they can be worshipped. 
in verse 6, the prosecutor gives his summary. Solomon has done evil in the eyes of the Lord. He does not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Then in verses 9 and 10, we see God's own verdict on Solomon. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart has turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And then in verses 11 to 13, God passes sentence. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I'll most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I'll not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I'll not tear the whole kingdom from you, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, whom I've chosen. Here I see God doing the thing that he promised to do, but doing it with a broken heart. He tears away the kingdom, but not yet. He can't do it yet. He can't bring himself to do it because he loved David and he loved Solomon. He tears away the kingdom, but not the whole kingdom because he can't bear to to see his, his children whom he loves with nothing left of his blessing. You'll know this if you're a parent. You'll know how in your anger you, you come down hard on your kids and you tell them this is how it's going to be. And then you retreat. And you say no. The punishment will be a bit less. I can't go the whole hog. I don't want to deprive you of all of that. I don't want to punish you fully as I've said. God passes sentence on Solomon, but not not the full sentence that Solomon's sin deserves. Even in the judgment, even in the punishment, the grace of God stands firm. What state is Solomon's heart in? Let me show you how completely Solomon has gone wrong. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's on page 196. Please turn with me to this. Page 196, Deuteronomy 17. Moses is warning the people, Israel, Before they go into the promised land, he looks into their future and he sees a day when there might be a king among them. Look at verses 16 and 17. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. 
For the Lord has told you, you must not go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon, did you acquire great numbers of horses? Yes. Solomon, did you go to Egypt to get those horses? Yes. Solomon, did you take many wives? Yes. Solomon, did you accumulate silver and gold? Yes. Solomon, has your heart gone astray entirely? Yes. By the categories of God's own word, Solomon, the one who's been blessed so wonderfully by God, is a total and absolute failure. Folks, can I tell you a tragic irony to top this off? We read at the start of our our time together thinking about this this evening a wonderful verse from Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Who wrote that? Solomon. Folks, it's one thing to know that we, we should guard our hearts. It's another thing to do it. Friends, as we've thought about the shape of Solomon's heart, I want to spend the last few minutes thinking with you about the state of our own hearts this evening. What shape is your heart? What shape's my heart in tonight? Folks, it seems to me that the dangers, the things that'll that'll take us away from God aren't all that different. When I I summarized these things that Solomon got caught up in, I saw two major dynamics at play. The wrong kinds of relationships. Folks, can I tell you that when you're the pastor in a church, you have a strange relationship with everyone in the church. You kind of are in a family relationship with everyone. You're, You're a little bit like a dad to everyone. Their news matters to you. So whenever you meet somebody and they tell you, I've got a new boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're excited for them, it's wonderful. Or, or somebody tells you they've, they've become engaged to be married, your, your heart leaps with them. But can I tell you that I can't be excited with you if you tell me about a new relationship that you've struck up with somebody And I have no confidence that that person will be good for you and lead you on with Jesus Christ. If somewhere in my heart of hearts I worry that that person will will take you away from the Lord, then there's no joy in my heart. Folks, our relationships, we must ask ourselves, Will this person draw me closer to Christ or will they pull me away? Above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life.
And the second area that played itself out in the life of Solomon and still plays it out in every single one of our lives today is in our relationship with wealth and God's blessings. Folks, it's a wonderful thing to see each other doing well and succeeding. My, my prayer for you is that you'll know God's blessing, that your, your career will prosper, and that you'll know God's goodness and blessing in all ways. But what's happening to your soul? Is your wealth making you a, a bigger person, a person much more active in generosity, much more open-handed and ready to share with others? Or is your wealth limiting your horizons, shrinking your soul, focusing you only on the bottom line in your bank account and what you can do with that next pound that you earn? Above all else, guard your heart for that's the wellspring of your life. Jesus knew the importance of the heart and he, he taught often about it. If you read the Gospels, pay attention to how Jesus doesn't care much about outward behavior. You know, this good thing or this bad thing. He's, he's more interested in, in the internal our hearts, the health of our hearts and what's going on there. So when the religion scholar came to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the most important thing in life? Jesus was able to answer him quickly, to point him back to the, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that, that saying that every faithful Israelite said every day of their lives, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Folks, it's about loving God. If I can make it all very simple for you for a moment, my only desire for you and for me is that we love God. We love him. That he becomes the, the, the joy of our hearts, the living center of our lives. Everything else will take care of itself, so long as that's the case. What shapes your heart in this evening? Is God, is your love for God right at the center, indisputably at the center? Or are things starting to creep in? Is your passion for God diminished, compromised, reduced? You know, when I look at the life of Solomon, I see a guy who, who seems to have started better than he finished. As a young fellow, I used to think that it would be easier for me to follow Jesus as I went through life, that my heart would become purer naturally, and I'm not so sure anymore. I read a thing in uh, Steve, our ministry coordinator, did an evening with our leaders here this week, and he produced a manual for them. And there was a, as I was reading that manual with him, I, I saw a thing that he put in there that really shocked me. There's some, some Christian writer on leadership. He said that most leaders start better than they finish. 
Not one or two leaders, not some leaders, but most. And at first I thought it was wrong. I thought it was overstated. And then I let my mind scan through the people that I've encountered and the people I've worshipped with. And I began to see that this might be true. That there's something in us, something in us that our hearts are deceptive, they deceive us, they're easily deceived, and we are easily led astray. Brothers and sisters in Christ, could I urge you to, to be humble on this issue? Don't read the Solomon story and say, what, what a rotten egg Solomon was. That'll never happen to me. Look at Solomon and say, there but, the grace, but by the grace of God go I. Let Solomon be a warning to you. I think that's why this story is here in all the technicolor that we've seen it. To warn us. To guard our hearts. Above all else, guard your heart. For it's the wellspring of life. Let us pray.